0: Hey everybody, thank you so much for joining with us today for SCF Online and thank you for being part of our worship. Thank you for being part of this teaching time. And uh, this morning in our teaching time, we're gonna gonna start with some review. Um, And I know review is like, uh, it's like bran flakes, right? Not very exciting, but it is good for you. And uh, so for today in Forward Together in Love, we're, we're gonna have a little review, particularly because I think the review is gonna really help us segue into where we want this uh, conversation to go next as we work our way through 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where Paul tells us what love looks like and what it doesn't look like. And so let's begin our review with 1 John 4:8. God is love. God is love. Love is his DNA. Father, Son, and Spirit. Um, We often think of God in in, in a triangular sense, the, the Trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit dwelling together in perfect relational love, in triune unity, in perfect relational oneness. Father, Son, and Spirit. That's the very definition of unsurpassable love. God is love. And out of his love, he creates the world. Out of his love, he creates human beings, he creates us. And love, agape, loves to express itself, loves to give, loves to ascribe, loves to affirm. And so God wants to express himself toward us. And so God creates us with an incredible need for him. It's a a genius arrangement. God, who loves to give, creates us with a need for him to give. He creates us with a God-shaped vacuum in our heart. And there are needs in the life of every single human being that only God can fill. And we often call these needs core longings. And they're good. They're created by God. And so we have the need to feel significance. We have the need to feel like we've got a purpose, like we have meaning. And, and um, really, we have the need to feel unconditional love. Love not simply because of what we look like or what we can do, but love just because of who you are. And only God can fully and perfectly meet that need. It's a beautiful, beautiful arrangement. And so God's design is that he pours out his love and his life into you, and that he fills you up, fills up that God-shaped vacuum, fills it up with his life and his love, and that you, from a place of fullness, express that love back to him in your worship and in your living for him. And from a place of fullness, all of your core longings are met by God. And from that place of fullness, well, you spill over with love and you ascribe worth to others. And the whole thing glorifies God. It's his perfect, beautiful, brilliant, creative plan. And um, I, I said a moment ago that we we think of God in, in triangular fashion, father, son, and spirit, one God eternally existing in three equal persons, perfect relational love. Well, God's creative plan is that there be like mini models of that triangle all over the world, Uh, microcosms, if you will, of the Trinity all over the world. And it kind of looks like this. God, who is love, pours his love in his life into me. And uh, I reflect that love back to him in my worship my core longings are fully met by God. And God, who is love, pours his life and his love into my friend and colleague, Dave Hamill. And Dave is filled with the life and the love of God and reflects that love back to God in his worship. And Dave, from a place of fullness, his core longings are met by God. And from a place of fullness, he overflows with love to me and expresses worth to me. And I, from a place of fullness, overflow with love for Dave and express worth to Dave. And it's like, God, me, and Dave. It's like a mini model of the Trinity. It's a fractal. It's a never-ending pattern. It's a perfect and brilliant design, and the whole thing glorifies God. Can you imagine what the world would be like if everybody was filled with the love and the life of God? And if everybody was reflecting that love back to God in worship. And if everybody's core longings were fully met by God, and if everybody was overflowing with love to everybody else, can you imagine what the world would be like? To quote the late uh, singer-composer Sam Cooke, who wrote a, a song in the 1960s called Wonderful World, one of the lines in that song say, what a wonderful world this would be. But, Sin happens, Uh, Genesis three, we know that story. Sin enters into the human experience and sin causes us to really turn to self and away from God. Sin really drives us toward self-sufficiency rather than God dependency. Sin is like a wall that utterly and completely blocks the flow of the life and love of God from getting into us. God still loves, but it's not getting into us. Our sin uh, entirely blocks that. This is what we call the fall or being in Adam. Our sin is like a wall that deflects the love and the life of God from getting into us. God still loves, but it's not filling us. And so we're empty but we still have this God-shaped vacuum in us. We still have these needs, these core longings for significance and purpose and meaning and so on. But if God's not meeting that need, well then we've gotta to look to something else or to someone else to try and get those needs met. And you become like a, like a vacuum suctioning up uh, bits of worth and scraps of significance and morsels of meaning from the things around you and from the people around you. and So instead of living from a place of fullness, you live from a place of emptiness. Instead of living out of celebration, you're living out of desperation. Instead of living in a mode that says, I just want to overflow, you're living in a mode that says, I want to get. And so we're not getting life from God, and so we're trying to get life from the things around us and from the people around us. And and we create a world of idols in in so doing. An idol is uh, anything in your life that you are using to fill a role that only God can fill. That's what an idol is. And so you're suctioning up uh, bits and morsels and scraps of worth and significance, but it's not just you, it's everybody. Everybody is doing this. And it becomes a competition. It becomes a competition for the scraps and the morsels and the bits of worth and significance because there's only so much to go around and not everybody can win in this competition. And the world calls winning in this competition... The world calls that life. That's the real life. When you're winning in what the world is competing for, that's the real life. But the Bible calls that life death. Solomon says it this way. He says, there is a path before each person that seems right, but it ends in death. I memorized that verse uh, decades ago in another translation, and it says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 39, if you cling to your life, if you cling to your life, the life that the world calls life, the life that you get from winning in the competition, if you cling to that, Jesus said, you will lose it. That competition is unwinnable. You will lose 100% sure. You'll lose it. But if you give up your life, if you give up your life that the world calls life, that life that the world says is life because you're winning at the competition, if you give that up for me, Jesus says, well, now you're in a position to find real life. You will find it. And so human beings have this uh, suction going on where going around trying to meet our core longings through our performance, through our accumulating, through our looks, through our success, through the recognition that we get, through our uh, through our consumption, through our jobs, through the house we live in, through the car that we drive, through our family, through our girlfriend, boyfriend, husband, wife, through the money we've got in our bank account, we're competing with those around us, we're trying to suction up morsels of worth to try and fill the core longings that God wants to meet for free. And the whole world becomes a stage of competition and we create all kinds of idols. I referenced that Sam Cooke song, Wonderful World, and what a wonderful world this would be. Well, in that same song, in The, in the Bridge, um, he really describes this competition quite well. And uh, here's, here's what the bridge in that song says. Now, I don't claim to be an A student, but I'm trying to be. For maybe by being an A student, baby, I can win your love for me. That's the competition. And, you know, when you compete and try to be the A student, maybe you'll, maybe you'll win in that competition and you'll become the A student and maybe you won't. And maybe if you become the A student, maybe you will win her love or his love, or maybe you won't. But even if you win her love or win his love, you still lose in the competition because the love that you're really longing for is unconditional love, full love, permanent love. What you're really longing for is God's love. Only God's love can fully meet that need that God-shaped vacuum, that, that need for unconditional love. And you know what, when we look to our spouse or our girlfriend or boyfriend, our significant other, when we look for their love to fill that need that only God can fill, what we end up doing is making our, our spouse or our significant other an idol. We're looking to them to fill a role that only God can fill, and it puts them in a, and us, it puts us in an untenable and unwinnable situation. So we're all competing, live from a place of emptiness, and we all compete, it's inevitable, and this is what leads to envy. We talked about this the last couple of weeks. When we're competing, it inevitably leads to envy because you know i'm i'm going after that morsel of worth over there but so is that person they're going after that same morsel of worth and they get it and i don't they win i lose they win at the competition i lose at the competition well now i'm i've got resentment i'm mad at them you know it should have been me that's not fair why can't i that's that's jealousy that's envy paul says love doesn't envy love doesn't look like jealousy Envy is that feeling of resentment that we experience when somebody else gets what we want. It's that feeling of resentment when we lose in the competition game. And envy is what you will inevitably experience when you play the competition game. And We said that envy blocks the flow of love, and it absolutely does. You cannot ascribe unsurpassable worth to someone, which is what love is, and envy them at the same time. You can't ascribe worth to somebody while at the same time competing with them for worth. Can't do both at the same time. And this is where, okay, end of, end of introduction. We'll, we'll, get on, we'll get off of bran flakes and maybe onto raisin bran. Hopefully it's a little bit more exciting now. And here's the segue because boastfulness and pride operate in our lives, very, very similarly, uh, similarly to how envy does. Here's what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 13, verse four. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud. When you're living from a place of emptiness, you're trying to, um, trying to get your needs met. There's, there's two things that you always do. There's two things that you always do when you live from a place of enviness, or from a place of emptiness. You you display and you hide. You display and you hide. You put on display what you think you need to put on display to get validation and to get approval and to get uh, worth from others, and you Hide from view what you think you need to hide in order, again, to get validation and approval and worth from people. When we display, we are boasting. When we display, we are boasting. We're like a peacock. We're poofing out uh, our feathers. Look at me, look at this, and we're doing it to get worth. We're doing it to try and get something from people, to, to get recognized, to be affirmed, to be validated. Just you know, look at me and give me a morsel of worth. And that's why the peacock poofs its feathers. Boastfulness is you poofing your peacock feathers. Pride is you believing you're the peacock. You're a legend in your own mind. You've come to display Uh, you've come to believe your own display. You've come to believe your own performance. You've perfected the display, maybe with years of practice, and now even you believe it. Well, boastfulness and pride block the flow of love. Boastfulness and pride block the flow of love. Both boastfulness and pride come from a place of living from emptiness, both boastfulness and pride come from a place of not living from the fullness of the love of God and both block the flow of love to others. Because you cannot ascribe unsurpassable worth to someone while you are at the same time trying to extract worth from them. Ascribing worth to someone and getting worth from someone are mutually exclusive. You can't do both at the same time. If I'm trying to draw recognition from you, I cannot at the same time ascribe worth to you. And all of this to say, when it's love, when it's genuine love, agape love, it's always, always, always humble. And the antithesis of love is pride. Hoofing your peacock feathers, that's boasting. Believing that you're the peacock, that's pride. And we're all prone to this. We're all prone to this. We're all prone to this, whether we're Christian or non-Christian. You know, as I think about this, um, let me go off script here just for a moment. Um, Let's say that I am not a Christian. I've never surrendered my life to Jesus as Lord. I've never said yes to a personal relationship with Jesus. What do I have at my disposal? What resources are available to me to somehow try and be okay? What resources are available to me for me to try and meet my core longings? Well, the Bible has a word for those resources, and the word is flesh, the flesh. And we see in in the New Testament the phrase, um, walking after the flesh, walking after the flesh. You can think of the flesh, and this is maybe a bit simplistic, but you can think of the flesh like a, like a realm, like a, like, a, like a set of resources that you have to draw upon to try and be okay entirely apart from Jesus Christ. That's the flesh. But then I become a Christian. I say yes to Jesus as Lord. I surrender my life to Jesus, I have a a personal relationship with Jesus now, and, and that opens up a whole new realm to me. And that new realm that's available to me is called the spirit. And we read in the New Testament, the phrase walking after the spirit. Well, what does that look like? That's walking from a place of fullness, walking from a place where all of my core longings are perfectly met by God in Christ. But here's the thing. You can be in Christ. You can be a Christian and you can walk after the Spirit or you can walk after the flesh. You can be in Christ and still walk after the flesh, still live from a place of emptiness, still trying to compete for worth that you've been given for free by God. You can still try And walk in such a way as to try and get your needs met apart from Jesus Christ. And as Christians, we all, there's a proneness to want to walk after the flesh rather than walking in the spirit, to, to live trying to meet our own needs apart from Christ rather than living from fullness where our core longings are perfectly met by God in Christ. There's a proneness to that. One of my favorite hymns um, says the words, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That's the hymn writer talking about this proneness to, to walking after the flesh, to living almost like functional atheists trying to get our needs met apart from Jesus Christ. And in the hymn, it's like the hymn writer comes to this place and says, what am I doing? I want to walk after the Spirit. I want to live from a place of fullness. And he says, here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Paul said kind of the same thing in, um, I think it's Galatians chapter five. He says, walk after the Spirit and you won't fulfill the lusts of the flesh. You can be in Jesus and you can walk from a place of fullness or you can walk from a place of emptiness. You can walk after the spirit or you can walk after the flesh. When we live from a place of emptiness, well, for all of us, when we live from a place of emptiness, um, we will compete. And when we compete, we will envy. It's inevitable. And we will experience boasting and pride. Um, it's inevitable when we're living from a place of emptiness when Christian, you are walking after the flesh. But we're very clever at, at how we do this, how we how we display boastfulness and pride. We're very clever in how we do it. Like very few people are so crass and so narcissistic that they just walk up and open their mouth and just start bragging. There's very few people like that. Most people are way more clever than that, and uh, we find very clever ways of doing this. Uh, Let me give you an example from from my own life uh, when I was in Bible college. So in my last year of Bible college, I was the student body president, uh, which maybe sounds more... um, impressive than it really is. It was a pretty small college. But in the second last year, that's at the end of that uh, school year, that's when we had the the elections and different people got elected to different things. I got elected to be student body president. That was at the end of my second last year. And so at the end of my second last year, um, I knew that I had been elected student body president, but not everybody did. And I kind of wanted to you know poof my feathers a little bit. And so, rather than me just opening my mouth and bragging about that, I would be pretty clever. You know, I would be talking to a group of my friends and I would say, hey, didn't Doug do a great job this year as student body president? And they'd be like, yeah, Doug's great. Doug did an awesome job. And then they would say, well, who's gonna be a student body president next year? And I would say, oh, well, me, poof. You know, poof, poof, goes the feathers. And, you know, um, we want to display our achievements. Particularly if there's somebody else in the room who's uh, poofing their feathers and displaying their achievements, then that just ignites something within us that wants to uh, poof our achievements and to poof our feathers. It kind of looks like this. <laughs> to... Two peacocks uh, competing, poofing their feathers. You know, the worst, um, I think the worst form of pride is religious pride. And maybe I shouldn't say the worst form of pride because pride is pride. Uh, it, it all misses the mark. But I think there's something specific about religious pride. It's it's pernicious. It's insidious. It 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 creeps up on us. And um, you know, religious pride. I can get a lot of of uh, idolatrous worth from poofing my religious feathers. In fact, that was that's the whole reason why Paul writes this chapter, First Corinthians chapter thirteen. It's because of religious pride, religious feather-poofing that's going on in the Corinthian church, you'll remember that chapter 12 and chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians are, are about spiritual gifts. Um, they're about the supernatural gifts, what Paul calls the pneumaticoi or the charismata, uh, speaking in tongues and, and the interpretation of tongues and the gift of knowledge and, and uh, speaking a word of wisdom and, and uh, the uh, gift of prophecy. And what's going on in the church in Corinth is there's all this religious feather-poofing. They're poofing their charismatic feathers uh, in this church. They're going to church, and they're saying, well, I speak in tongues. Well, I interpret tongues. Well, I've got the gift of prophecy. Well, I have a word of knowledge. Well, I have a word of wisdom. And they're all going to church, and, and kind of in this religious competition, they're poofing their religious peacock feathers And Paul's got nothing against the gifts. The gifts are great. But Paul said to them, you are exercising the gifts in an unloving way. So knock it off. And that's exactly why Paul writes 1 Corinthians 13. That's why it is intentionally wedged between these two chapters on spiritual gifts. Paul didn't write 1 Corinthians 13, so we'd have something to read at weddings. He wrote it to correct a group that is Uh, poofing their religious feathers in the misuse of these wonderful gifts. Another way to to grasp uh, religious life is to poof uh, our feathers in the area of truth. And we can do truth poofing and say, well, we've got the truth and you don't. And uh, there can be a lot of arrogance and pride around the the convictions that you're right and you can look down on people who disagree with you and there's an arrogance associated with that and there's a judging with that and it's not done in love. Another way of doing this religious poofing is in the area of lifestyle. And this is where we go, well, you know, I may not be perfect, but at least I'm not like those people over there, right? Peacock feather poofing. We're, we're the ones who are the righteous ones. We're the ones who are pursuing holiness and we're the ones walking with God and we look down upon those whose lifestyle doesn't agree with us. This religious pride thing, um, well, it's as I said, it's pernicious, it's insidious, it, it creeps up on us if we're not aware and attending to it. And whenever we're functioning from any degree of emptiness, this boastfulness and pride is gonna manifest itself in us. Let me give you a sense of just how insidious religious pride is. And I'll give you an example again from my own life. And this this example is not from when I was a kid or when I was in college. This example is from this past week. So this past week, there was one night in particular where I just couldn't sleep. And I lay awake in bed for hours. It was one of those nights, I'm sure you've had them, where your body is tired, but your brain is like going 100 miles an hour. Well, my brain never goes 100 miles an hour. Um, I think it tops out at about 45. My brain works kind of like a Hyundai uh, as opposed to a Ford. So uh, I'm I'm lying in bed, I'm, I'm awake, my brain's going 45 miles an hour. And I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about this sermon. I'm kind of going over the sermon in my head. I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about our church. I'm thinking about the church in general. I'm thinking about evangelicalism, and and as I'm thinking about all of that, I'm thinking about evangelicalism and and uh, really what's happened and what is happening in evangelicalism, particularly in these last couple of years during COVID, and and um, COVID has been for the church. I don't want to be offensive in the way I make this analogy, but it's been been a 9-11 level event. As horrific and as shocking as 9-11 was to our society and deadly, COVID has been that to the evangelical church. It's been shocking and disruptive and deadly. Churches have died. I'm not talking about the, the physical death of people from COVID, but churches have died from, from COVID. And as I'm lying in bed, I'm thinking about all of this, and, and I'm thinking about, you know, particularly the last couple of years, it seems to me that in evangelicalism, there has been this rising exclusivism, this rising kind of uh, surging self-righteousness, and it's coming from many uh, corners, this... Um, this Um, arrogant kind of certitude, this exclusivism, judgmentalism that seems to be on the rise in many places within evangelicalism. And there are pastors and church leaders and teachers who seem to be making it their life's work to criticize other pastors and other leaders and other teachers. And to point out why, why they're off track and why they're deceived and why they're dangerous. And, and uh, you know, here's why I'm right and here's why they're wrong. And as I'm thinking about all this at night, I'm thinking, man, I don't like this. It's negative. It's divisive. It's counterproductive. It's elitist. It's distracting from what really matters and people, you know, taking their preferences and their opinions and elevating those and giving their preferences and opinions the weight of conviction and then using those opinions and preferences almost as tests of orthodoxy or tests of, of fellowship and who they'll fellowship with. And and as I'm thinking about all this and stewing about all this, at night, what occurred to me was that I was strangely feeding off of it. I was thinking to myself, well, you know, I'm not perfect, but at least I'm not like them. At least I'm not judgmental like they are. At least I'm not intolerant like they are. At least I'm humble. Like, look at me, gaze upon my humility. And it occurs to me that I'm I'm feather-poofing myself. I'm poofing my religious feathers. It's so insidious, it's so pernicious, it creeps in. And it occurred to me that I am an anti-Pharisee Pharisee. I'm really quite proud of just how humble I really am. Well, what does that mean? Well, what it means for me, to be quite honest, is that there is some part of me that was feeding off of this It means that there's some part of my life that's not getting its full worth from Jesus. And I'm living from an emptiness in the area of some core longing. And so I'm sucking up, uh, trying to suck up more worth by poofing my religious feathers. And I'm doing it, ironically, by judging the judgers, by being intolerant of the intolerant. I'm an anti-Pharisee, Pharisee I'm arrogantly pointing out the arrogance of the arrogant I'm proudly pointing out the pride of the proud. This religious pride is insidious it's pernicious it creeps in. Well here is a message from God's Word that I absolutely need to hear and I believe I believe we all need to hear it and here's what it is we have no room to boast. We have no room to boast. No room to boast. Paul says it this way in Romans 3.27. Can we boast then that we have done anything to be accepted by God? And he answers his own question. No. Earlier in that same chapter, uh, Romans three. Paul tells us that we've all sinned and fall short of the mark. We all, all of us as, a, as an entire human society fall short of God's standards. Now I have no trouble believing this, none whatsoever. I have no trouble believing that I have fallen short of God's standards. You know why? Because I don't even live up to my own standards. What about you? Have you ever said you're gonna do something and then you didn't do it? or said you wouldn't do something and then you went ahead and did it. That's certainly true of me. I haven't even lived up to my own standards, much less God's standards. Paul says again in that Romans three chapter that there are none that are righteous before God. No, not one. And then Paul says in Ephesians two, eight and nine, he says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you, you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. By grace, you have been saved through faith. Nothing you've done, nothing you've done. Not the results of works, why? So that no one can boast. We have no room to boast. So the bottom line really is this. If you have any standing before God whatsoever, It's only because of his outrageous, unmerited grace toward us, period. There's no room for boasting. Maybe your sin is judging others, or maybe your sin is judging the judges. Either way, we need God's grace. Maybe you're a Pharisee, or maybe you're an anti-Pharisee Pharisee. Either way, we need God's grace. Maybe maybe you struggle with lust in your mind and not another soul knows about it, or maybe you act on it. Either way, you need God's grace. Maybe you struggle with secret anger or maybe you act on your anger. Either way, you need God's grace. Maybe you've got secret thoughts of hate or maybe you act on your hate. Either way, you need God's grace. Maybe Maybe you've got racist thoughts deep down in the innermost recesses of your being. And maybe you act on those racist thoughts. Either way, you need God's grace. Maybe you've got one of the religiously sanctioned sins. You know what those are? Those are the sins that seem to be okay in church, right? Greed, gossip, not caring enough, not loving enough. Those are the religiously sanctioned sins. Or maybe you've got one of the non-religiously sanctioned sins. Maybe you have an addiction to pornography or an addiction to drugs. Maybe you're the 21st century equivalent of first century uh, tax collectors and prostitutes. Either way, you need God's grace. Either way, there's no room to boast. Either way, there's no room to judge. The fact that we stand before God at all is only because of his outrageous grace. It's free. It's a gift. We don't deserve it. We didn't earn it. We didn't merit it. We don't deserve it, not even a little bit. It's only by God's grace that we can stand before him at all. There's no room for boasting. There's no room for arrogance. There's no room for judging. There's no room to cast the first stone. If we're going to boast... Paul says, boast in Jesus, boast in Jesus. You want to poof up some feathers? Poof up Jesus. Quite frankly, I have no feathers to poof up and neither do you. Put him on display. That's what it means to boast in Jesus. Put him on display. Well, we're going to leave it there for today. Um... We're not entirely done with this uh, theme yet. We want to talk about next week, this idea of there's no room to boast. And what we want to do next week is to look at two extremes of that that we can slip into if we're not careful, two kind of unhealthy, imbalanced extremes. And they can sometimes show up in the church. So we'll talk about those two extremes next week. But just before we close, uh, would you pray with me? Our Father, we are in awe of you, in awe of your love, your grace. We deserve nothing from you, and yet you pour out on us such lavish welcome, such lavish hospitality, lavish grace. How deep is your love for us, how vast, beyond all measure. And I pray right now for our SCF Online family that this week, well, we'd boast in Jesus, that we would be like Paul when he first arrived in Corinth and said, the only thing I want to put on display is Christ and him crucified. Amen. Amen.